Well, let's go ahead and we'll begin with prayer. And um, then we'll try to, I don't really want to do much in the way of um, review, but we'll pick up here where I think we're at in chapter 5. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, which is a light to our feet, um, a light on our pathway, and you teach us uh, what we need to know about you, about ourselves, about life here, and life eternal, and so we pray that we would be able to understand and and absorb into our hearts and minds your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I do believe we um, took a minute or two on the very last verse. In fact, fact, it would be the last sentence of the 26th verse of chapter 4. In, in just explaining what that means. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Um, other translations um, interpret or, or translate the word upon as by. Now, just this little fast side note here. Um, When I was in seminary, I was required to take Greek, and Hebrew was um, not required. And so I, even some of the professors advised that a lot of us pastored. And so I, I was pastoring a little church called a student pastorate, and trying to do all that. And when you do a student pastorate, you preach, you know, life-changing, dynamic sermons every single Sunday in addition to mowing the grass, uh, unplugging the uh, restrooms where the little kids are. Um, You run the bulletin, and that was back, this dates me, but that was back in the day when you had the old drum, you know, with ink in it that you poured ink in, the mimeograph thing. So because pastoring and going to seminary was very valuable as far as experience, parallel to what you were learning. They <clears throat> didn't push Hebrew on us because it's, it's a very difficult language. Um, and it's, it was just too much. Plus, um, especially nowadays, there's so many wonderful English helps to the different languages that uh, you can still get at meanings. Um, but I, it makes sense to me that the better translation is, in those days men begin to call themselves by the name of the Lord. Meaning, there was a division that took place in identification. Those who identified with the Lord and those who didn't. And this is the first um, not really the first, but this is um, another of the indications of the gradual corrupting and corruption of the human race. The fourth chapter, of course, we had the murder of Abel by Cain. Um, the, you know, the first 
of that kind of thing that went on. And so I want you to remember that little last half of that verse because I think it'll come into play um, a little bit later. Now, the first three verses of five, this is a bit of a recount um, <clears throat> of the generations or the genealogy of Adam. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. We've looked at what that means, both morally and what we call the moral image of God in us and the natural image of God in us. The natural image is simply those um, qualities, faculties, um, primarily um, volition, the power to choose, the ability to choose, reason, and affections or um, emotion. Um, and then the moral condition uh, in relation to God is, is the moral image. So image and likeness is both the natural image we, we, we choose, we think, we feel, so does God. And also, we are either right or wrong in the sight of God. Now, what had happened in chapter 3, Adam and Eve lost the moral image of God. They were no longer righteous. They retained the natural image, reason, choice, feeling, emotion. But those three faculties are skewed, weakened, flawed, um, fallen. We, they are clear enough that God still can use them and appeals to them and we function by them. But they are poor guides for us. Whereas prior to sin, um, your thinking was clear, your choices were right, and what you um, as aspired after was good. Um, so we have a faint resemblance to the image and likeness of God which God is still able to restore the full image, but we lost an awful lot. Maybe one quick illustration, then we'll just move on. Going over to um, uh, England, Germany, France in the summer of uh, 2019, we saw um, some preserved war-damaged buildings. Most of them were cathedrals. And in some cases, there were only two walls or three walls uh, still there. You could see arches where they'd had glass, but it was just, it was just a bombed-out shell. Um, no services held there, obviously. Uh, roped off because it, you occasionally could would have stone fall and so forth. But there was not that much of a delay when you first set eyes on it in trying to figure out what it was. I mean, the instant you saw it, it's a cathedral. Now, it shattered. It's unusable, but I know what it is. It's recognizable. In the same sense, then, 
we, we're built for God. We're shattered. We're largely uninhabitable and unusable. But we still bear the clear, unmistakable sense and outline that we're a house made for God. We're not equal with the animal kingdom. We retain that sense of godness. Now, I mentioned to you as we look at these first 11 chapters of Genesis that the, um, the very primitive beginning uh, ground floor foundation for all the major Christian doctrines that we find and that we hold to today are in these first 11 chapters. So we look here in verse 1. He made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man or mankind in the day when they were created. The actual word here for man is Adam. That, that was what Adam meant, man. So notice, I touched on this a few weeks ago, so we're not spending time. But he named them, that's plural, okay? He named them. Male, he made them male, female, and named them singular, man. So in God's creation, mankind is male and female together, is, is humankind, okay? Um, and... To, to go the, and, and I mentioned back when we looked at this, saying nothing about singleness and all that, um, that you're not a complete human being if you're not married. Not, we're not talking about that. But two males, two females, and, and, and I'm not being crazy here, is subhuman. Okay? It is subhuman. It's not even human. Because he called them together man, mankind, human. And that first line, he created them male and female. And I don't, I understand me here. I don't mean at all that we should shrug all this that's going on, just shrug it off. But I can tell you this, all the furor and all the gender junk and the gender fluidity and what pronoun and all that, um, God hasn't chewed one of his fingernails yet. And he doesn't plan to. You can beat your head against this Gibraltar all you want, but he created them male and female, and you can't fix that. You can't change that. So in one sense, it makes me just furious to hear all of it. But at the, on the other hand, give it your best shot. You're not going to undo it, period. Now, 
This is a major doctrine. Verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son, notice this, in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Now, Seth, we know, replaced Abel, who had been uh, murdered by Cain. So Seth, then, is the line uh, from whom the Jewish nation would arise and through whom Christ would be born. So um, notice here the contrast between verse 1 and verse 3. God made Adam in God's image and likeness. Then Adam had a son. Now this Adam is a different Adam. This is a fallen Adam. This is subsequent to their disobedience and alienation from God. And so now the Adam of verse 3 is not the Adam of verse 1. And Adam and his um, descendants, which includes us, are made in his image and likeness, meaning fallen, a bent to sinning, a proclivity to rebellion against God's authority. Um, and a self-exaltation of our own will and our own way. And it, is, it doesn't have to be coached or taught or instructed. We never have to sit our children down and train them. Now here's how to be belligerent. Here's how you, you must be, here's what you must do to be belligerent. Here's how you push back against the smallest little command or direction here's how you do it and then we'll have tomorrow we'll have a class for the kids on how to fight over each other's toys we need to train nobody ever has had to do that since this was written it comes natural <laughs> and that's what this means from that day to this we're born in Adam's likeness. Now, I can, I'm, I won't get off the track except to just say a couple things. This is why in the New Testament, St. Paul talks so much about the first Adam and the second Adam. The first Adam and this Adam. And you and I are all come, come into this world spiritually, we look just like our dad Adam. Okay? And we act like him. We have family resemblance to Adam from the garden. But Jesus came in the place of Adam, as Paul said, the second Adam. And the second Adam endured the same temptation and so forth that Adam did, but did not fail as Adam did. Therefore, the whole exhortation of the gospel is by an act of faith, and repentance and turning from sin. We are translated, is one of the words used, or transferred, but we are or reborn or born again. I am born again to a new race of Adam. And instead of looking like Adam of the garden, we have a family resemblance to the second Adam, who's Jesus. So the first race is corrupt. 
the second new spiritual race is after the image of Jesus. That make sense? And when we stand before judgment day, I better not look like the first Adam, <laughs> my first dad, were to bear resemblance of this new race that we are born into by faith. Now, something else that this teaches us <clears throat> is um, <clears throat> that when God breathed into Adam, the breath of lives is what the Hebrew is plural. And it mean, I think the breath of lives means two things. Number one, we use this term, it, do, it doesn't mean what it sounds like. It, the, it's animal life, which doesn't mean, you know, animals. But it, it's animalistic life. It's zoe, zoology. It's, it's the life of all living creatures. That's one of the lives that God breathed into Adam because he was clay on the ground. He'd formed him. He breathed into him. Then the, the life-giving breath of all living things. But unlike all the rest of all the living things, he also breathed into him an immortal spirit from God. So we have the breath of God in us. That's why this animal life that's in this body will die but the other life that God breathed into us never dies lives forever never dies either in heaven or in hell and so God's whole aim then while we're still in a living breathing body that houses our eternal spirit his whole aim is to get me born out of the corrupt race spiritually into the new Adam, Jesus, into a new race, as it were, so that my eternal spirit will live not separated from God, but with God forever. No one, by the way, we can say, well, why would God send anybody to hell? He didn't send anybody to hell. God's never sent anybody to hell. He's battled everybody to the death not to go there. But when you're belligerent and you say, I don't want God, we're immortal. We don't cease to exist. We can't. It would almost be maybe, I guess, if God could just, well, there are, t there are denominations um, in the Christian, I don't, I, I'm really using the word Christian loosely, but there are denominations that believe there is no hell. They believe there's a heaven, but there's no hell. Well, and what they fundamentally do is they deny, they're not just denying eternal separation from God, but they are denying that our soul is immortal. That's really what they deny. They do not believe in the immortality of the soul. But the Bible is clear that we are an immortal spirit. We'll never die. So we got to go somewhere. And God gives us our choice. You don't want God? Okay. He'll fight me tooth and nail not to make that choice. And he'll pester me all my life. But if I finally say no, 
enough times. He finally says, when this house can't house that spirit anymore, your will be done. You get your choice. We're in that same, we're, we're in that mess today in our country. Where is compassion, people say, you know? Where's decency? Where's fairness? Where's helping your fellow man? Look, you don't want God. This is what you get. We don't want God. We don't want prayers anywhere. We don't want the mention of God. We want separation of church or state. Okay, you got it. All God does is say, all right, that's what you want. You can have it. And so, we have no one to blame or to complain to because with God comes decency, forgiveness, redemption, kindness, justice, mercy, love. We don't want God. So what do you get? You get hatred. You get perverted, twisted justice, which isn't justice. You get the most unmerciful, unkind, hellish, uh, cut your throat kind of attitude, whether it is cancel culture or literally cutting your throat on the subway. This is what you get. When you push God out, something's going to come in that vacuum. That's what we got. Now, this little verse teaches us, too, that um, each generation, another, another meaning of when, when it says the, uh, God breathed into Adam the breath of, breath of lives, it meant he also gave the power, of course, of procreation. And that procreation is not merely a physical body that bears a family resemblance. But it's also... A, a spiritual, a, a spirit. My soul or my spirit is also passed down from my parents. So, you know, um, that's another whole issue. And I didn't even think about it until right now, and I shouldn't be thinking of stuff that gets off the track. Um, you can't factor that out of the whole abortion argument. Because that's not just a bunch of cells. There, there is an eternal spirit there. Um, you just can't get rid of God um, and still have any kind of a semblance of a decent, safe society. Okay? Now, <clears throat> um, Oh, there's a couple of things I could say there, but I don't need to. Um, then, starting with four, you're back into kind of the, it, it is the genealogy up until Noah, okay? So when we get um, clear through down to verse um, 32, um, well, earlier, you know, Noah was born in um, uh, 29, 
um, which his, his name means rest and so forth, which at the first looks like a pretty misnamed person, but it's on the other side of the flood that he's referring to. Noah was 500 years old. Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay? Now, we get to chapter 6. It came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whoever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. We'll quit there just for a second. Um, Let me just... um, do the best I can to um, stay brief. There's all kinds of um, kind of cornball um, mythical notions that come up about this sons of God and daughters of men. And the idea that angels or some kind of supernatural beings came and married women. Well, that you might as well become Romans and Greeks with all the different gods that are, that are marrying women on earth and is, is nuts. Okay? All this means, okay, this is very simple. The sons of God, remember the last verse of chapter 4? Then begin men to call themselves by the name of the Lord to distinguish themselves from those who didn't follow the Lord. That's all this is talking about. It's the intermingling for a while. And I think this is fairly reasonable. A number of people think that those who followed the Lord were the descendants of Seth. Those who followed or didn't follow the Lord, were the descendants of Cain. And those two groups, if you want to call it, were distinguished by whether or not they, they followed God, lived for God, so forth, were sons of God. This is not talking about some supernatural beings. This is just talking about intermingling of believers with unbelievers, which ended up diluting and corrupting the whole race, all the population that was then on the earth. Okay? Now, um, don't marry. That's why clear up in the New Testament. Paul says, to paraphrase it, Christians don't marry non-Christians. Just don't. I know that I'm old, out of it, and, you know, unreasonable and all that. But um, i got to tell you this. I was as godless as can be. I mean, just a cussing, drinking mess. Um... But even in that stupor of a state, um, when I was 20 or 21 in college, I'd, ha- I'd been raised right in a godly Christian home, and I knew better. I had 
Uh, my dad and, and mom never divulged stuff to us kids that was going on in the church. I never knew all that. But I would overhear him. They would never use names. But I would overhear him talking to my mom about the desperate situations that he deal with every day, and in many cases we all do um, in the ministry. But, um, you know, people going through just bitter, um, um, you know, marriage fighting and just all kinds of stuff. Um, and I would hear him talk about how um, people would finally confess to him or whatever. They'd say, you know what? I had my doubts even before I, before I went down the aisle. I had a, I had a dear woman who I love uh, here in town. Um, and God's been, he's helped her and kind of turned her life around. But I still remember her telling me as plain as day, she said, I was at the back double doors of a particular church where I was going to get married. Uh, my dad was there, uh, ready to, you know, send me down the aisle or walk me down the aisle. You know, the organist or whoever's playing whatever that song is. Um, and she said, I heard an audible voice. She said, I know it. I just heard a noise. Don't do this. And she knew. I know this guy's no good. But her reasoning was, everybody's here. Families travel from out of... The cake's made. You know what I mean? And then for, I don't know, number of years, I, who never knew her then, get involved in it. Just a mess. Um, and she told me, she said, I knew shouldn't have done it. But I did it anyway. Well, that's the old, that's the human race. <laughs> I know I shouldn't, but I'm going to do it anyway. <clears throat> so I'd heard enough of those stories that I remember saying to myself, and I really think I'd have stuck with it. I, I said to myself, if I meet, you know, one of the girls I'm running around with, if I feel like, you know, I really love them and, you know, we're thinking about getting married, but I'm not where I should be with God, I am, this is crazy that I'm sitting around thinking about this, but, I've heard so many horror stories that I made my mind up. If my parents tell me that they feel terribly, you know, they don't feel right about this, I'm not going to do it. Doesn't mean I'm going to become a Christian or get right with God. I don't need to get right with God yet. I'm having too much fun partying and carrying on. But in the meantime, if I meet somebody, I'm not getting married if people that love God and have good relationship with God pray and say, I think it's a mistake. I'm not doing it. I saw so much from a distance, never grew up in it, that I just figured, I'm not, I am not going to do it. <clears throat> anyway, I have no use, or have no idea what use that is. But, um, <clears throat> so, but that's exactly what happened here. 
the lovers of God, the followers of God, chose, it says, uh, multiple wives apparently, wherever, of whoever. Now, so that confusing about the sons of God, daughters of men, is merely, we could update it, Christians and non-Christians. That's all it's talking about. God says, my spirit won't strive with man forever. What does that mean? Anybody know what the word strive here means? What, when you just read this, what, what's the first thought that comes to your mind? My spirit won't always strive with mankind. Anybody? Pardon me? Okay, not remain in is, pardon me? Okay. Pardon me? Align. Yeah. Some versions, some, a few versions say not remain in or remain with either, you know, but that, that he won't fellowship with. Fellowship is broken. I mean, I, I'm not going to forever. Um, the word convict is involved there too. It's striving means confront, to push back on what you're doing, to convict you for the way you're you're going. I won't I won't contest the direction you're taking forever. At some point, I'm gonna stand out of the way and say, okay, if that's what you want. That's that's the way you want to go. Here's the thing that I think I've really this jumped out at me. Um, we'll get the description here in the next verse, in a couple verses. This is how bad things were, and I don't know, but I think it's probably likely we're looking at um, several millions of people on the earth by then. This is this is two thousand years since Adam, um, as we're on the front edge of the flood okay so there are a lot of people and there were only eight people eight who were righteous noah and his wife their three sons shem ham japheth and their three wives that's it that's it <laughs> the entire you could say the entire religious assembly on earth at that time with some millions of, of, of people, there's eight. Now, I'm not being sacrilegious here at all, but if I'd have been God, I don't know what in the world I'd have waited another 120 years for. But no, what, look at the mercy unbelievable mercy of God. I've been striving with this people. We don't know how many centuries, really. How long? I'm not going to keep doing this forever, but I will keep doing it for 120 more years. I, I mean, if it had been me, I'd say, okay, you got to Friday. No, I'll give you 120 more years. I will keep talking to you, drawing you. And then we know this. You know, I've always said this, and I just noticed it today. 
I've been wrong. Well, not, not wrong as far I've never been wrong. So, but I've mentioned about Jeremiah, poor old prophet Jeremiah, that he preached approximately 50 years. He was a prophet of God, and not one person converted. Nobody believed him, other than his secretary, Baruch, who was a stenographer. That's it, okay? But it dawned on me today, Noah, who Peter says was a preacher of righteousness, preached for 120 years and had no converts while he was building the ark. So he had it a lot worse than Jeremiah. No one in the 120 years that God granted them extra to keep giving them a chance to turn around, straighten up. Not one. So that at the end of that 120 extension, there were still only eight. Quick thought here too. <clears throat> I guess we'll eventually get through this. But, um, you know, today um, I get stuff. I get not so much mail anymore, though I do get some, you know, hard copy stuff that comes in the, you know, in the mail about how to, you know, some fantastic program to do such and such with your church until a whole, you know, state tramples each other to getting into your church. Um, that's all you get. That's all you hear. But most of it's online now. You get all this stuff all the time. Texts, emails, um, and we'd like to call you. And I, I get calls. I, you know, have to instruct the secretaries to make sure, look, if they won't give you your name or you never heard of their organization, just tell them we're not interested. Um, because there are all these uh, leeches, frankly, that live around the church world, and they make a living off of trying to teach you, you know, how to, well, it's always how to grow your church. Last I checked, it was Jesus' church. Um, and he doesn't take too kindly to ministers calling it, you know, Dan Morgan Ministries. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, it better be Jesus. But at any rate, um, now I don't know why I started down that whole road. Um, <clears throat> well, we, oh, this is not maybe politically correct as far as, you know, never offending people. Um, but I get calls and I get people, there's a lot of people visit here. Uh, all across the country, a lot of people visit churches, but they are all of them are they are very finicky consumers who are at a buffet. You understand what I mean? And I'll have a I, I'll have a tablespoon of that, but I don't like that. And I don't want that. And ooh, I can't stand that. And that that's how people look for a church today. I remember not here. But I remember my um, church before I moved here had a woman call, and she was looking for a church. She, she said, I'm not, I won't even attend until, unless I know this is the case. Do you have a symphony for junior hires? Do you have a junior high symphony in your church? No. <laughs> 
I don't see anyone on the horizon either. And that was it. She said, okay, thank you. You've got to be kidding me. But I want you to notice this. How many people, well, we couldn't find a good church with a youth group. We didn't have the, they didn't have a junior high. They had the junior high and the senior high together, and that just doesn't work, and we just don't like that. And they didn't have this, and they didn't have that. <clears throat> Do you know Noah didn't have a church to go to? Nor did he have a Bible. There was no Bible then. He had no church to go to. Last I checked, Noah didn't have a youth pastor. He couldn't send little Shem, Ham, and Japheth um, off to youth group. Do you understand what I'm saying? He was in hell. He lived there. The only people, not just on the block, but the only people in the globe that love God. But he managed to keep all three of his boys walking the straight and narrow. And I don't know where they got their wives, but they apparently did too. So with none of the helps we have today other than the Holy Spirit, who's not a bad help to have, they stayed clean, upright, walking straight in this kind of a world. So we don't have any excuses. We can make it. Four, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, that's the same subject of the previous verse, and they bore children to them. They were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, this is another one that people just get all whacked out about. Um, Nephilim is interpreted in a lot of different versions as there were giants in the, in the land. Well, I personally... Um, I think the best interpretation of this is very similar to the verse before. The word here, literally translated Nephilim, means to fall or earthborn. People of the earth, people of the world, people not of God, but people that are earthly, focused on just this world no regard for eternity and for God. I think this, again, um, he's not speaking, even if we would go along with the alternate translation that these were giants. He's not talking about physical giants, could have been to some degree, but likely he's talking about um, men of renown, meaning we, we will say so-and-so was a giant of a man. Well, we don't mean he was 7'3". We don't even mean that. He was a great man. He was a powerful man. He was an influential man. Maybe not good, maybe bad, but he, was, he had a huge impact on that age, that century, um, that administration, that's what he's talking about. And here's what I believe is meant here. There's nothing worse than um, intelligent, um, 
maybe, intelligent, educated, um, socially and culturally advanced people who also have enough Bible Christian, Judeo-Christian um, awareness that they know proper behavior when they need to know it. There's nobody worse as far as being um, deceitful and impactful in a cunning way than people that are that know both worlds. In other words, people who have known the things of God and fall from it often are the worst enemies of God. They have enough knowledge that they can twist it. They have enough knowledge that they can then deceive and talk the language of Christians. But they're, they're, they're deceivers. In Francis Asbury's journal, who was sent over here in 1771 by John Wesley, the Methodist founder in England. He sent Francis Asbury over here to be the first Methodist preacher slash missionary in America. And I've got his journal and I've read it. It's fascinating. Um, but he talked about a preacher that had been with a Methodist. He'd been a Methodist preacher for a while. And he fell away, not only disagreed with the Methodist, but he just fell away from God. And he just turned away from the Lord. And somehow in his journal, when he was talking about this particular guy, I can't remember his name, and how he once had been a good man, good fellowship with him, but he turned Francis Asbury referred to Jesus' exhortation, which sometimes is a little hard to figure out and understand what he means. But he said to his disciples, he said, be harmless as doves, but wise as serpents. Okay? Asbury's just said in his journal, he said, unfortunately, he lost, <coughs> he lost his humble dovishness but retained his serpent cunning I think that's what this is talking about men of renown who knew the things of God but turned away but you retain the knowledge when when I needed to when I was a ninth grader I'm really getting off here. When I was a ninth grader and I went to church camp, I went to this big church camp in Portland. Um, there'd be 1,500 people there. Um, anyway, I, don't, I got into two knockdown, drag out, you know, bloody nose type fights. Um, got in trouble with the counselors, um, even from, you know, from my own dad's church. Um, I got in trouble almost daily in that seven-day camp, okay? And on Sunday, the closing day, they, all the counselors, um, 
voted, I, I don't know if the kids voted or not, I think maybe some of them did, but anyway, the counselors voted and everything, on um, camper of the year for each grade, okay? And they said the most, who exhibited the most Christian character and, you know, was just a good little boy or girl. I got elected and was brought up on the, the auditorium, you know, thing as ninth grade camper of the year. I knew the lingo. I knew the language. And I knew, I just knew. And so I could pass as, oh, I tell you, Danny, he's a good boy. No, I wasn't. Um, it's dangerous. That's why, frankly, I would rather run into somebody who's got no background, doesn't know anything about God. It's easier to work with them and love them and try to guide them into God's way than people who have everything down pat but don't live it and don't love it. Okay, enough of that. Um, Verse five is quite a description. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. So here's these characteristics. One, the wickedness was great that every intent or motive of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, all the time. Now that is a bad description. But the Lord then in six, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Anybody want to explain verse 6? Remembering that we have an omniscient God who knows the future. Um, What is this saying? Pardon me? Yeah. (laughs) True. Um. Well, we don't have a ton of time, so. This is one of a number of occasions in Scripture where to make things somewhat understandable and relatable to humans who God knew were the ones reading this book, um, he speaks in men's terms. Um, It wasn't that God changed here. Mankind changed. Now, I understand the quandary, if you want to look at it, that God knows everything. He knows the future. So he had to know, I mean, he knew that this was coming. But as it actually came historically, on, as, as men looked at it, God even is outside of time and space as creations of him. But um, the grief is what they were doing and what they were exposing themselves to. Um, God's grief at sin is, is for them because he knows the jeopardy. There's, there, there's a term that we'll use, use in theology um, we're liable to punishment. 
Meaning, if we continue on the same route, we will find ourselves under judgment of God and banished from his presence. That grieves God. Now, he can't go against his own sense of justice and righteousness. He'll never do that. But it still grieves God for every soul that resists him and won't allow him to bless, gather to himself, and grant them eternal life. So the grief here um, is the change. God didn't wake up in the morning and change his mind. <clears throat> it's dealing with the people who had. The Lord said, I'll blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. Um, Obviously, what do we see here? God's, God's justice is perfect. He, he would not. Um, he couldn't be a just God and include Noah in the destruction of everybody else. Noah didn't deserve that. He walked with God. So God made a, a distinction. Noah found grace and favor. Then you have this... Um, here kind of a capsule of description of Noah. These are the records of the generations of Noah, or the times, basically. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. What a great description. What a great description. Noah, now, I won't get into too much here either. Noah was a righteous man. Righteousness is to live not only rightly in the sense of God's objective law, but a righteous man is a man whose acts and deeds are in keeping with his own moral character. God is righteous in that he never does anything that is in keeping with his holiness. So we can trust that he will never do anything that is, is contrary to his own holiness. In the same way, a righteous man, that, um, their walk, observable outward life, it flows from an inward heart that is what it ought to be. Then secondly, this, I'm just a little quibbling here, um, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Now, I'm reading from the New American Standard. Um, other versions, well, this one too, has a footnote. And if you look at the, um, if you look at the footnotes, um, what other words do we see that would adequately translate the word here? If you've got footnotes, you may not have a Bible that has them. Pardon me? Perfect. Now, especially in the New Testament, there's the word uh, teleos, which has to do with fulfilling its ultimate design, basically, or perfect. We use the word perfect a lot. Um, Flying, <clears throat> flying from, f flew from Chicago, what, three weeks ago or so, to Denver. And um, 
you know, I think I mentioned I was going to go back there, and then, uh, uh, yeah, in fact, Phil took that evening. I flew back just in agony in business class, um, which was sort of even a notch above old first class. I mean, you got the the bed will full clear flat and you've got them just waiting on you and everything. It's really easy to get used to that in a hurry. Um, but <clears throat> I thought to myself, when that pilot, big plane, you know, it's, you've, got, you've got two rows here and then you've got like five and then you've got another two, I don't know what, what you know, number it was, seven something. Anyway, I thought when he settled in at Denver, the thought came to my mind, that was a perfect landing. It felt, you know, I mean, there wasn't, there wasn't this jolting around stuff and, you know, it was just, just a little scooch, you know what I mean? I mean, you're, that's perfect. Was it literally perfect? I doubt it. I mean, I suppose there could have been a sixteenth of an inch higher the right wing than the left wing, and the landing gear wasn't exactly, and he might not have been exactly, well, you can't say that's perfect then. We understand what we mean. But there are people who have an ax to grind who are also Bible translators, and they have theological bias. And the idea, even though the Bible uses the word perfect, love God with a perfect heart, which means holy, entirely. What's the problem with that? Well, they don't believe that you can have that kind of a heart. So whenever they run into the word perfect, which the older versions use prolifically, they will usually translate it either complete or as it says here, blameless. Now, here's why I don't like the word blameless. Blameless implies acts, whereas perfect is a condition. Okay? A condition, a state of soul, not deeds. The deeds flow from the state. If my heart is right with God. My deeds will be right, not the other way around. Doing right deeds doesn't make my heart right. My heart has to be made right first. So that's why I don't like the word blameless because I know why they translate it that way because they don't like the word perfect. You say the word perfect, you know again, the Bible, had, John said, if you have, even though you're a believer, he says if you have fear of judgment, you're, you're not yet made perfect. And he said, he that has perfect love, perfect love casts out fear. Well, get used to the word because it simply means to fulfill its intended purpose. And God, what's our intended purpose? Love the Lord your God, your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, neighbors yourself. Then it's, it is correct to use the term, that's perfect. And God looked at Job, he looked at Noah, he looked at a lot of people in the scripture and he said, he said to the devil about Job, have you seen Job? He's perfect. Now, of course, God, you know, could be his own translator then. Um, but at any rate, 
This is the kind of, and Noah was a man, just like everybody else. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, Javeth. The earth was corrupt in the sight of God. The earth was filled with violence. I think it's interesting that there are two places in this chapter where God sums up the mess of the earth and the world. It was filled with violence. Now, I know that there was all kinds of other stuff. But the upper note that God said in describing the whole mess was it's filled with violence. Where we are stalking toward that as a society. There is a level of verbal and physical violence I never, that I've never seen before. There's, there's things are just jagged and raw and um, cutting. It's violence. So I think that's significant, that the, the conditions that brought on the flood is violence. Now, God looked on the earth. Behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is, there's a second place, filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make an ark... Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, and then, um, well, we'll go in a minute or two. But let's back up. Um, all the pictures of the ark, when you think of it, especially when you think of what we, you know, the pictures for the little kids and all that, everybody has this general picture of the ark and you've got this bow of a boat and you you know whatever and then you've got the stories above it and a roof and you go um i am confident no i i wasn't there but this was nothing but a barge this is just a rectangular barge um and most people trying to figure out the total cubic feet and all kinds of stuff about the ark um it's just a barge. It wasn't meant to be steered or go anywhere. It was just a it was just a barge that would be a place of safety to float till the water went back down. Okay, um, and it's <clears throat> if you go. It's, of course, given in cubits, and there are two measures of cubits. Generally, probably the most common <coughs> cubit was 18 inches. The, the cubit event, early on, the cubit was the measurement from your elbow to the tip of your middle finger. So that was, and then they standardized it at 18. And then you have later, <coughs> excuse me, um, settled on 21 inches. So... However you figure it, um, if you look at, where are we here, 15, lengthy yards, 300 cubits. If it's the 18-inch cubit, it's 450 feet long, um, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Now, um, <clears throat> make three levels um, and... 
we'll, we'll stop here for a second. The question, of course, people look and they look at the thousands of, I mean, I don't know how many different kinds of squirrels we got. Um, when, we, when I was <clears throat> pastoring back in the Midwest, there was, a, there was a little kind of a tribe of squirrels, okay, that lived, that weren't, weren't hardly found outside of the county that we lived in. And they were jet black, okay? And, you know, you could go to the next county, I suppose, if you're really desperate, and you could find a, a you know, a cinnamon-colored one, or you could find gray squirrels. These were jet black squirrels, okay? Well, God didn't need to have a black squirrel and a gray squirrel, and, you know, he had a squirrel, okay? One thing God built into creation that I think has been intentionally um, twisted, it's been noticed, and then it's been um, tried to press it into use for evolution, is adaptability. Now God clearly built into everything he made the concept of preservation. So preservation involves adapting adapting to different climates and so forth, different lengths of time of exposure to the elements, to the sun, to whatever. And so knowing, God knowing that there would be, you could take one animal that would be in the cat family, okay? Why he did that, I don't know. But anyway, and out of that one cat, you can get tigers, you can get, you can get adaption and get the whole, what do you call it, species and then this genus or whatever. But anyway, you, do, you don't have to have, and people will often cite, well, you couldn't get all the animals on an ark. If you have one pair of, of a species, God knew what they would do over the millennia, okay? Um, and notice, too, a lot of people have said, well, how in the world could you know, Noah round all those up and so forth? In the, what verse is it, 20th of 6, of the birds after their kind, the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing on the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. God brought them. And again, if he created everything, it's, he do, it's not hard for him to have them come um, come to Noah. They took on then more clean animals than they did unclean. The clean animals were the ones that they, were, they could eat, but also the ones that they were to sacrifice. So that, that kind of animal would have a te- heavier toll made on it between consumption and because right now everybody was a vegetarian. They just ate, you know, herbs. But God was aware after the flood that he would then say, now, in ju- instead of only the plants of all the earth, he said, now, every animal that's clean, and he said what clean and unclean meant, is for food. So with that being advanced, um, and God knowing that, he has Noah take on more clean than unclean. The unclean animals... Uh, 
you know, you might think, well, why in the world would he even, well, why save unclean animals? Unclean animals are really all of the scavengers that he made, but he made them for a reason. Um, all the bottom feeders, fish, they, they're the garbage eaters. Um, all, of the, all of the birds that are, you know, the um, raptors, vultures, what, they are, they're, they clean stuff up. Um, and so this whole system is a wise system, but God said, now, don't be eating animals that eat rotten meat, okay? You can eat these, don't eat that. Why save them? Well, they're still necessary to the whole system, but you don't need as many of them because we're not eating them or sacrificing them, okay? Now, it's time to quit. Um, Kids will be out in a couple minutes. <clears throat> so, um, any fast questions, thoughts before we go? Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot in these chapters. Plus, there's a lot that I think can be misconstrued um, in these chapters. So, um, but anyway, any any questions before we go? Okay. Well, let's pray while it's still 8.10. Father in heaven, dismiss us. I pray with your presence as we go. <clears throat> and I pray that you would continue to just guide each one of our lives into everything you want us to have as far as a relationship with you, that we will know you and walk with you and be blessed by you beyond all we can ask or think. Keep us safe, we ask. Go with us in Christ's name. Amen.